0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Stephen Heller about the big ideas that have changed graphic design. There are certain elements that are recurring, that are not stylistic, they're not uh, novelties, they are the core, the building blocks of our field, and they include the UPC code, the pointed finger, and team magazines. Here's
1: Debbie Millman. Here's a list for you. Dust jackets, random notes, white space, psychedelia, the pointed finger, and the clenched fist. What do all these things have in common? They're all ideas, and they've all changed graphic design. That's according to my guest, Stephen Heller. Stephen Heller is an AIGA award-winning author, editor, and art director. He's written shelves upon shelves of books on graphic design, and he's seen a lot in his day. Lucky for us, he and his co-author, Veronique Vienne, have sifted, sorted, and compiled it all into a beautiful new book called 100 Ideas That Changed Graphic Design. Stephen Heller? Welcome back to Design Matters.
0: Hello. It's good to be here.
1: Congratulations on your new book, and congratulations on one of your other recent accolades, the Design Mind Award from the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. I understand you were awarded and honored at the White House. What was that like?
0: Michelle's a cool dude.
1: Is she? Yeah. So she, you and she were simpatico? We were,
0: we were simpatico for about... Two and a half minutes.
1: (laughs) Well, it's better than two and a half seconds. And
0: she's much taller than I.
1: And I heard she's actually much thinner in person.
0: Uh, I guess. Not that that matters. Her her arms are great. (laughs) But she said, uh, I told her I loved her.
1: You did? You actually used the words, I love you? Yes.
0: And she said thanks, and that was it. She didn't say it back? No, I wasn't expecting that. That would come with a contribution.
1: (laughs) Well, let's talk about your new book. Um, What made you decide to do this particular book on this specific subject?
0: Well, this is one of the few books that I've done that wasn't my idea to begin with. Lawrence King Publishers is run by Lawrence King. And I had done a book for him called Art Direction Explained at Last with Veronique And we were having lunch, as we do often, and he said he's putting a series together, a hundred ideas that change different things, fashion, advertising, photography. And he asked me if I would do this, and I thought this is a great way to do design history without falling into the same format and the same routine as all the other design history books.
1: So in your introduction, you start by stating Physicists cite the Big Bang Theory to explain the origin of the universe. Likewise, we believe that there are at least 100 Big Bangs in the history of graphic art that help explain why examples of graphic design look and feel the way they do. We call this the Big Idea Theory. So I'm going to ask you the very question you pose in your book. So what's with the Big Idea?
0: Well, first of all, I have to tell you, I haven't read the book since it's come out.
1: Yes, but you wrote it.
0: I wrote it, but I forget what I write, usually after I write it. I'll remind you. So (laughs) what you just quoted sounded great. The big idea is the thing that we use to create what we create. It's a very simple notion that there are certain elements within the field of graphic design that are recurring that are not stylistic. They're not uh, novelties. They are the core, the building blocks of our field. And every field has these things, and every field has at least 100 of them.
1: How did you pick 100 ideas? Did you have more than that originally? Did you cull it down to 100? Was it hard? Was it easy to come up with 100?
0: It's an interesting process because once you start thinking ideas, you have to define what an idea is. And you know, we could go round and round about what that is, but essentially coming up with a hundred ideas is fairly easy. It's coming up with the hundred ideas you're going to use that's very hard.
1: Was there a list that you used to determine whether the idea was bookworthy?
0: Well, what happened is Veronique took 50 ideas and I would take 50 ideas. So we would write about those 50 each. We might trade them back and forth. But we put together long lists of virtually everything. We just let our minds go. You know, so if it was pointing fingers, is that an idea? Well, it emerges a lot throughout the history of graphic design. So yeah, let's call it an idea. So we made that as part of the list. And then we kind of cross-referenced each other's ideas and came up with a bunch. We didn't even count at that point. And at that point, also, our editor Joe Lightfoot at um, Lawrence King started bugging us. She wanted to know what these ideas were that we were talking about so generally and vaguely. So we started sending her ideas. And then she acted as the supreme rabbi. She would send them back with questions. Why is this an idea? And it became very Talmudic.
1: Now, when you say Talmudic, for those of my listeners that might not know what the Talmud is, how would you describe that process? Well, I'd
0: say it it was a lot of questioning. And a lot of answers and then a lot of questions about the answers. It was a defense, basically, of what we were proposing and a defense based on somebody who really didn't know graphic design. So we had to essentially let this person know who was a neophyte to the field what we were talking about. So it had to pass that filtering system. Did she veto anything? She vetoed a bunch of things. I don't remember what they are now because it's too painful. Uh, (laughs) But what we would do is this process happened day after day. You know, we'd come up with three things. I'd send them to Veronique. Veronique would say, no, not that one, but how about this one? And she'd send something. And then we'd send them off. And then they'd come back with the questions. So you could conceivably put together a very boring book of all the questions and answers.
1: You seem to enjoy collaborating with people on books. Quite a number of your hundred-plus books are done with a collaborator or a co-author. What is the collaboration process like? Do you have one way that you like to collaborate, or do you find that there are different ways with different
0: people? There are different ways with different people. I mean, a lot of my collaborations, like with Gail Anderson uh, or Mirko Illich or Louise Feely, they will handle a certain part of the book with Mirko and Gail, they will actually get material that I then go through, sift through, and make choices. Or they will make choices and kind of guide me into the process, and then I'll write about it. So usually with with them, I do all the writing. With Lita Tellerico, who I've done a number of books with, we'll share the writing and the editing. With Veronique, it's very much we are writing it together. And it got to a point where we didn't know who wrote what. I mean, it was clear because I took the more ephemeral things, she took the headier things, I took the more obvious things, she took the more abstract things. That's the way her French mind works and the way my New York mind works is, let me get it out of, off the table and into the book.
1: Now, you mentioned Louise Feely. For our listeners that might not know, you're married to Louise Feely. I am. Yes, you are. Is there a difference in the way that you collaborate with your life partner than you do with a collaborator of just a book or somebody that's also a friend?
0: Well, actually, no, because, you know, when you're collaborating, it becomes a marriage. Okay. So um, she has her place. She has her expertise. She has the area that she's going to work on. She will then stumble into mine periodically and I'll stumble into hers only because we're, we're sharing uh, the outcomes. But there's no real difference. I mean, we're doing a book now. We did a book uh, last year for Thames & Hudson called Scripts. It was just this kind of wonderful homage to script type. It was eye candy at the highest level. And we're doing a follow-up called Shadows. And these are just things that I like, you know, there are things that I feel very comfortable with and, and take joy in. So I did a whole first run of getting the material, scanning the material, which is a great mindless adventure, uh, sending it over to her and then she culls it. She edits it based on how she's going to design it. And she cut out, I don't know, maybe 10% of what I sent over. Now, a lot of that, was a good edit, but there were always the few things that just were dear to me and not to her, and that's where I kind of say, uh, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill myself.
1: (laughs) Now, she also has a monograph coming.
0: She has a monograph coming called Elegantissima.
1: And did you collaborate with her in any way on that, or was that a completely solo effort on her part?
0: Well, I wrote the foreword for it, which includes the letter... That I wrote her when she was an art director at Pantheon doing the most beautiful book jackets in the world. I wrote her a fan letter and that's how we met.
1: I love that.
0: It's actually the intro to the intro. Wonderful.
1: Oh, I can't wait to see it. When is it coming out?
0: Her book comes out in September, Princeton Architectural
1: Press. Maybe you can put in a good word for us to be able to get her here on the show to talk about it. I'm sure she will. hear all about your torrid romance
0: pre-marriage. Typographic romance.
1: (laughs) So let's talk a little bit more about your book. The last thing I want to talk to you about from the introduction is an interesting conundrum that you pose and you state – How many graphic designers does it take to come up with a big idea? Breakthrough ideas might be credited to a single individual, but they're often ready for someone to bring them forward. Still, the mystery remains. How many Rodchenkos did it take to define the visual revolution of the constructivist movement? Was Alexei Brodovich a genius, or was he simply a product of his time? And how come no one remembers who designed the ubiquitous paper recycling symbol while everyone knows that Paul Rand came up with the ill-fated Enron logo? So why is that? What are the answers to these questions?
0: The answer to that question is going to remain answerless. Why? Uh, Because essentially what happens is history, as we all know, is written by the survivors. And there are... Certain historical facts that never get covered. And in graphic design, it's fascinating how many things don't get covered until somebody uncovers them.
1: But isn't that the case with all genres? I mean, something doesn't get covered until somebody uncovers them.
0: Yeah, it's true. But graphic design is even more ephemeral. So some of the things that might go into a history book are ignored because they're just – they are so ephemeral. We remember the heroes – And somebody has told us who the heroes are or the heroes themselves have told us who they are.
1: So do you think that a lot of self-promotion goes into the making of a hero?
0: Well, I think that's true across the board. I mean, there are people in our business who hire PR folk, but uh, PR is the uh, art of getting your name out of uh, an address book and into the public eye.
1: Let's talk about some of the ideas in your book because – When you look at the book from a PR perspective, there are some little-known stories that you reveal, and there's some real celebration for things that I think – quite a number of graphic designers, let alone the public, completely take for granted. But because there are 100 ideas, in order to get my head around the book and how I was going to talk to you about the book, I decided that in order to have a somewhat organized conversation about the book, I needed to bucket the 100 ideas a bit. So I've tried. And I've come up with these buckets or this way of organizing the book. Objects, movements, commerce, style, visual language, and sex. Had to include sex. But let's start with objects. (laughs) So you include things such as books, posters, design magazines, teen magazines, handbooks, zines, ransom notes, manifestos, album covers, designers' websites, and rub-on designs or letters. And I love that you included rub-on designs, by the way. But why? Why did you include them?
0: Well, that was actually a Veronique one.
1: You're, you're making this difficult. We're going to have to get Veronique on the phone to answer these questions. We then. may,
0: but, but rub-on uh, lettering and rub-on design was really key to the whole DIY movement. It was an idea that allowed people to use typography, which was primarily vendor-based, who didn't know anything about typography, And so Letraset and some of the other velvet touch lettering and those things, these were very important ways of democratizing design. So in that sense, there is a really key idea there. It was also commerce. It was a business business. And many uh, companies engaged in that business, but it was to help people who didn't have access to compugraphics or hot type or whatever. And it was also there for people who were total neophytes or amateurs.
1: I used it because I couldn't afford type most of the time, and it was an easy way to, well, maybe not so easy, but a, a faster and and more financially prudent way to do what I needed to do back in the early 80s.
0: Well, also that goes right to hand lettering, which Mm -hmm. is another idea. And the idea of hand lettering is there to give a design a sense of personality and a signature, but also to mitigate expense. Paul Rand, when he did his hand lettering for the magazine Direction, was because he didn't want to pay the dough. You know, he didn't get much to begin with. Or Alex Steinweiss, he wasn't near anywhere near a a type shop in Bridgeport, Connecticut. So a lot of what happens is the mother of invention or the mother of invention determines what people are going to do that becomes an idea or a style.
1: And it seemed like quite a lot of the big breakthroughs were in many ways either serendipitous or accidental. When you talk about Steinweiss and the album cover— He didn't have a creative brief. It wasn't something that was uh, specifically charged for him to do in changing an entire way that albums were marketed and produced.
0: Well, in his case, you're right. There was no creative brief. There was no brief whatsoever.
1: It was like creating something out of nothing.
0: He created something out of nothing. There were illustrated album covers before he started doing it, but they weren't done in a poster-like manner. And they weren't done in a way that would really emphasize the personality of the music. And that's what he brought to it. And it came from him. It came from kind of being bored.
1: Now, you state in the book, somewhat sadly for me, that the album cover is effectively dead. Do you think it will ever have a comeback? Do you feel like it's not possible to do the same kind of craft-based work or design-based work with a CD or the digital image on iTunes?
0: No, I don't think so. And, you know, I'm not mourning it. It had its time. Everything has its time. And then it goes, and then we kind of mourn its loss, and then we celebrate it having been born to begin with. But uh, the album cover is is part of another technological era and another— Commercial art era. And, you know, it was nice. We have the artifacts. And it'll come back as a kind of uh, a curio. There's vinyl still being sold and maybe even more vinyl now than 10 years ago. But it's not going to be the art form. And it's certainly not going to be a means for designers to make any cash.
1: You start the chapter about the book, which is another one of the objects that has changed graphic design by stating, ever since Gutenberg introduced movable type in the 15th century, the book has been a laboratory for writers, artists, designers, and typographers. And I wanted to share a statement with you that Tom Peters said about Gutenberg in a recent interview that I did with him. He said that Gutenberg's printing press was not that big of a deal. The big deal was the industrial production of paper so that you could use the damn press. And First, I want to know what you think about that. And the second, and and he was probably being somewhat cheeky when saying it, but there is something kind of compelling about it when you think about the iPad and the influence the app store has had in the way we interact with new technology.
0: Well, new technology always breeds innovation. So whether he's being cheeky or not, he's saying a certain truth. There is this thing called the printing press. There was printing before Gutenberg. In China, there was woodblock printing. And you could print an entire newspaper if you wanted by cutting all the letters out. But it's the advances based on the concept. The concept of printing is what's important. And from that concept come a lot of other physical and metaphysical ideas The guy who runs the uh, planetarium, whose name I can never remember.
1: The planetarium, the Hayden Planetarium? The Hayden
0: Planetarium says that the worst thing about losing the space shuttle is that we're losing NASA. And that NASA in the 60s fostered all of this development, this creative and economic and industrial and engineering development. All these people wanted to go to the moon and they were competing with one another to come up with the tools to make that happen. So the offshoots of something are always as important, if not more important, than what the core idea is.
1: So in thinking about offshoots, you didn't include the subject or the topic of magazines in general. You actually included design magazines as one of the 100 ideas that changed graphic design and teen magazines. And I was obsessed with teen magazines when I was a teenager and and even am still a little bit today, although I don't know who any of the people in the magazines are um, other than Justin Bieber. But I'm wondering why there are two categories, why you chose to split it out so distinctly.
0: Well, I'm going to tell you and only you. (laughs) <laughs> that, okay
1: <laughs> that was
0: probably a mistake really yeah in what way well in the way that a magazine is as a storehouse of ideas and and uh information it should have been covered and it may have been covered in one of our lists and when you start doing these things you get caught up in the moment hmm The design magazine is very self-explanatory. and In fact, I'm doing a book on the history of design magazines. That was the Internet, the way of expressing and, and exchanging ideas about design. So that's a clear idea. The teen magazine was also a clear idea because it introduced a certain kind of design that was meant for an audience that hadn't existed. The teenager was born in the 50s. Before that, they were young people. And before they were young people, they were kids. They were not teenagers. Teenagers is a commercial invention.
1: Who invented
0: the term? I don't know who invented the term, but the marketing is claimed to be invented by Estelle Ellis, who worked with uh, a number of magazines like Mademoiselle and realized that there was a market out there for teens if only you would focus on those teens. And if you look at advertising... Throughout the 20th century, up until the post-war period, you will find that very little is aimed at young people. They're aimed at the mothers of young people, maybe the fathers of young people, but essentially they're missing in the consumer marketing attack.
1: And so when do you feel that that changed in the way that we're seeing it now?
0: In the post-war period, around 46, 47, 48, that's when um, these magazines started. Seventeen was really the first of the teen magazines and a very elegant one at that. Advertising was created to fill those magazines. And it goes back to the printing press versus paper. You see these entities being born and then there are more entities that are there to fill them. Same with the iPad and the app.
1: Well, and you also talk about books and book covers. Those are both separate ideas of the hundred. Um, And I was curious why that delineation as well.
0: Well, the book cover was never part of a book. That's the delineation.
1: Well, yeah, the dust jacket. The dust
0: jacket. I'm sorry, the cover is the book, but the dust jacket is what we're talking about. It was never meant to be part of the book. In fact, if you look at book competitions like the 50 book show that's not going to be at AIGA anymore. If you look at those competitions, you'll see that they just deal with the book and not the jacket. There was a special society, a ghetto for jacket designers. So we built that entry on that idea that the book cover was, or jacket, I'm sorry, was a piece of advertising.
1: Well, you write that dust jackets were unquestionably the low end of graphic design practice during the 20s and 30s because they were tainted by the crass practice of advertising. In what way?
0: They were meant to carry the quotes and blurbs and advertisements for other books. They were a conveyance. I mean, book dust jackets are just what they're called. They're there to protect a book from dust. And that's how they started, without any illustrations, with just a little window for the title, which is on the cover. But somebody, and we don't know who, but some marketing person in that primordial era said, we could use this for something else. But again, if you look at libraries, for the longest time, they would tear the jackets off.
1: Well, I think that segues perfectly into the next bucket of my organization of your book which is commerce. You include naive mascots, branding campaigns, forced obsolescence, corporate identity, brand narratives, and even the UPC code or barcode, as it's commonly called. And you say that it's arguably the most significant design idea of the 20th century. I almost dropped the book when I read that. Really? Yeah, why not? (laughs) You say that with such a cavalier shake of the shoulder.
0: Well, it's something that appears on everything. So, you know, it, it is the most ubiquitous piece of graphic art that you can find, and it has a purpose. Do you remember before it had the purpose, when they were proposing it? as this universal pricing code, but everybody had to use it? Yes. And you didn't know what it was for because was they didn't have scanners about it. yet? Yes,
1: yeah. yes. I was actually a cashier in a supermarket at that time and there was a lot of... Controversy and a lot of um, ideas about what it was really going to be for in terms of that sort of big brother conspiracy. Yeah, well, theory. totally big
0: brother. In fact, when I was art director of the op-ed page, I had an illustration done where people were branded with UPC codes, and this was before they were on every bottle of wine and every piece of uh, clothing that you'd buy. And now we can't live without them because we'd be standing on long lines. So this is something that has such a far-reaching effect, and it was. Designed
1: So it was designed – it was created by the U.S. Supermarket Ad Hoc Committee who worked with the brand consultancy McKinsey & Company on the development of an 11-digit code by which all products can now be identified. And you write that the UPC code is actually more versatile than it appears. And I'm wondering if you can talk about why or how it's more versatile. Well, I think the
0: versatility is both good and bad. I mean, versatile isn't necessarily a positive. Uh, Oh, I
1: took it that way. (laughs) Well, versatile
0: means that it can be used for good and evil. Ah, okay. But it can be applied to just about anything, not just a, a product. It can be applied to, you know, your thesis if you're a PhD candidate, just as the QR codes now are being so used. So versatility means that it has more universality than even it's set out to be.
1: Do you think that... It's something that people still view with trepidation. I think it's just sort of part of the vernacular, so to speak, of our daily existence now. It's totally
0: part of the vernacular. And anybody that was born 20 years ago just accepts it for what it is. And most people born before 20 years accept it because it's on everything they own. And it's only the conspiracy theorists and uh, those who are probably 95 years old that uh, still view it suspiciously.
1: I was really struck by your inclusion of the Marlboro Man in one of the examples in the brand narrative section, because I am always struck by the way in which people associate Marlboro with the Marlboro Man, this sort of sexy cowboy riding off into the sunset.
0: Who died of cancer.
1: Who died of cancer. Um, That hasn't actually, he hasn't been used as as part of their advertising in over 20 years, but yet people that are younger than 20 years old always recognize him as the Marlboro Man. But I I was really interested in how you talk about the specifically constructed narrative. Most people don't actually realize that originally the cigarette was targeted to women because it was one of the first filtered cigarettes. I actually have some advertising in my collection of old ads that shows a woman skiing on a ski slope. And the headline is, the filtered tips protect the lips. Um, and then in order to have a broader appeal and a bigger market share, the advertising was switched to this sort of rugged, versatile cowboy. Right. So I think that the brand narrative as, as an idea is one that I think is far-reaching, and, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you felt, as an idea, it should be included.
0: Well, first of all, I hate to oh, break no. this to you. Oh, no. You're going to tell me this, this is, is another one of Veronique's? I think this is Veronique's. I think what happened was she <laughs> said, let's do brand narratives. And I said, and forgive me, no!
1: <laughs> I know. You're still, you know, despite the fact that you co-founded the Branding Master's Program at the School of Visual Arts with me, I still feel like you're very, very anti-branding. No, not really. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was said believably.
0: But getting to your question, (laughs) we included it because the brand narrative is an underpinning for a lot of graphic design, Uh, whether it's the Marlboro Man advertisements or it's uh, Speedy Alka-Seltzer or any of those trade characters, creating a narrative and then illustrating that narrative, illuminating that narrative, is part of the design experience. And you can do it through typography and you can do it through illustration and you can do it through photography. You can do it through all these means that ultimately add up to graphic design. Also, just one quickie, Lucky Strike was the first cigarette that women smoked on moss, because Edward Bernays, who was Sigmund Freud's uh, nephew and the creator of public relations as we know it today, who wrote the book Propaganda, he was working for whatever it was, Lorillard, and he was also working for the suffragettes. And he put the two things together, and the cigarette became a symbol of rebellion for the suffragettes.
1: Fascinating. How many books are you working on at any given time, Steve? Ten. How do you keep track of all the material?
0: Well, I work with collaborators. and But not
1: always. No,
0: not always. But... uh, you know, it's like when I wake up in the morning, I just ask myself, what do I have to do today?
1: And in terms of the, the books themselves, are they generally books that you generate the overarching idea for or they publishing companies that are coming to you specifically with an idea they'd like you to write a book about?
0: 99% of them are my ideas.
1: And so how do you decide which publishing house you want to work with? Do you send a query? Do you call people up? How do you go about putting a book idea together? Well,
0: there are certain publishers who are more open to certain books. My my favorite of all books is Iron Fists, and I n- knew that that would be a good Fiden book, so it went to them. But it, it's usually, you know, I'll come up with an idea and then I'll talk to an editor who's a, an acquaintance or a friend, and get a sense of whether they're interested or not. And sometimes if people just say, yes, but we're we're interested, but we don't want it, then I just send it around.
1: And how many times do you get told, no, we're not interested? A lot. Really? And why is uh, Iron Fish your favorite book?
0: It's just the one that's closest to my whole life experience. Uh, It's the book about branding the totalitarian state. And I'm just fascinated with the... uh, tools of power and how those tools in terms of graphic design uh, have uh, manipulated our thoughts. So my son always jokes, he calls me the totalitarian state man. When he does an imitation of me, he always says, I'm Steve Heller and I write about totalitarian states.
1: <laughs> you know, i bet your son and I don't see him or hear him talking quite like that.
0: <laughs> oh, he does.
1: <laughs> well, speaking of fists, that's another idea that you include in 100 Ideas That Change Graphic Design. And this is the group of ideas I refer to as the visual language element. So it's pointed fingers, clenched fists, floating heads. Tell me the thought process in including these as ideas.
0: Well, before I tell you that thought process, many of these ideas are generated from other books that I've done. One of the books, my first real textbook was Design Literacy, which came out in three editions. And that's where I started looking at case studies or object lessons, as I called them, where I would look at a particular object. And for me, it didn't have to be a 3D object. It just had to be an entity. And I would discuss them. I would discuss either the history or I'd unpack the symbolism or whatever. So within that, you see a lot of recurring things happening. And a lot of my books are about taxonomies and organizations and similarities from borrowed design, which was about how we use ideas over and over again, to the book I did with Mirko Illich, Anatomy of Design, where you see how many different images from the past go into an image of the present.
1: Yeah, the power of association in that book is phenomenal and just seeing how one idea feeds another, feeds another, feeds another. Everything
0: feeds. And in in art, it's leapfrog. And in graphic design, it's kind of contiguous. So the pointing finger is one that I find a lot in type books, in advertising, in editorial design. It's just something that we do as an unthinking action. It's almost ritualistic that we'll point our finger in some way, either to say, look over there or, hey, you. And uh, it's part of our graphic language.
1: But in some cultures, it's considered offensive or, or rude to point like oh, that. Yeah,
0: definitely. And,
1: and that gesture can come back to haunt you, as it did with President Clinton. And I did not have sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Right. Um, but why do you think it's such a popular design gesture?
0: Because it tells you where to go. Oh, that was an easy
1: answer. (laughs) You reference Wolf Olin's 2012 Olympics logo as a good example of primitive figuration, along with the examples of Saul Bass's Anatomy of a Murder Poster. And I'm wondering if you think they're equally as good, since you refer to them both in the same area.
0: No, they're not (laughs) equally as good. However put yourself back in the late 1950s, early 60s, and seeing Saul Bass for the first time. Are you going to respond to it positively, or are you going to respond to it in a jarred sort of way? Uh, You know, when, when Saul Bass's work was shown for the first time, it was jarring. And only over time did it become looked upon as an extension of canvas onto film or onto a poster. You know, if you prefer representational over abstract art or uh, representational over expressionistic art, uh, you'll look at Saul Bass and say that's ugly.
1: Well, you talk about the notion of good design in 100 Ideas. How would you describe good design? I mean, what makes something good? If it, if it was something that was considered jarring at the time, is the notion that that opinion changes as people either become used to it or it becomes a trope that you then begin to see over and over. What gives you the sense that something is just part of the vernacular or part of the culture or is actually really
0: good? Well, that's a hard one. And it's totally subjective. You know, in writing about these things, you really need some distance. You know, it's it's not like we who write about design are writing about a film that's out and we're trying to be consumer advocates for the reader. It takes a little time to look at something and really understand that it's good. I mean, I got slammed many years ago for writing something called The Cult of the Ugly. And I got slammed by people a generation or two below me, you know, accused of old fogyism because I didn't accept the new way of typography. And to a certain extent, they were right. I didn't see it through the eyes that would have seen it as, as something other than ugly. Or I didn't use the term ugly the right way. And I think it comes down to even though we look at graphic design and respond immediately, and that's what it's there for, because graphic design is part of our culture, we can revisit it, look at it again, and change our opinions entirely.
1: I think the more you see things, the more they become acquired in in an appreciation. You don't get that jarred feeling after seeing something five or six or 10 or 15 times anymore. You become used to the effect.
0: Well, invariably, everything you see you're going to get used to. And you're either going to say, this was great when I first saw it and now it's crazy. Look at that Farrah Fawcett hair. (laughs) You know, and that's the way style is. That's the way culture is. And graphic design suffers from or is enriched by uh, that on a much quicker pace because of the purpose of graphic design.
1: You pose a couple of very interesting and timely questions when you talk about good design. And you write, like artists, graphic designers struggle to define good design. Who's the judge of the quality of the work they produce? The clients? The public? The critics? Or a jury selected by professional institutions? And – Is there one that you think is more important than the other? Do you think that there's one that we should be listening to more than another? This has been the topic of quite a few blog entries on many popular design blogs at the moment, and I'm just wondering if if you could weigh in on that.
0: You have to trust somebody else's opinion, and that is what it comes down to. If you're unsure of something, you look to somebody who seems to have greater wisdom or Uh, greater expertise, and if you trust them, you'll take in what they have to say about a particular thing. On the other hand, just remember, graphic design is not all that important. You know, in the big scheme of things, we can sit and unpack and analyze all we want, but we have to look at it in the context of what it is. I don't look at graphic design history, for example, as important as, say, the history of the Civil War. You know, I look at it as a piece of a larger pie, and it just happens to be the niche that I'm interested in.
1: I understand your point of view in terms of the history of graphic design not being as important as the history of the Civil War, yet you've spent probably the majority of your career uh, investigating and writing about the history of graphic design. So why are you doing that?
0: Well, interestingly enough, I write about the history of graphic design because I'm fascinated by the Civil War. (laughs)
1: Because everything is really connected.
0: Everything is connected. I mean, the reason Iron Fists is my favorite book is because I'm not writing just about graphic design. I'm writing about power and its effect on human beings, its effect on the world, its effect on economies, its effect on people's minds. There's all sorts of factors that go into it. So I'm not writing a history of who did what who made this layout or who made that typeface. I'm writing about who made this typeface and for what purpose and how it was ultimately used and how it was ultimately abused. And that's where writing history is fascinating. You can write about any kind of history as long as you connect the dots.
1: Well, I think that there's something really compelling about the notion of how many books you've written and how many lives you've impacted by what you've explored. Tell us about some of the books that you have coming up, since you have 10 or so going
0: on at the moment. That almost sounds like I've had a bad meal and something's (laughs) coming up.
1: Okay, let's rephrase that then. Tell us about the books you have on the horizon.
0: Well, there's a book that I did with Mirko Illich, which is about to be published, called Stop, Think, Go, Do. And this goes right to the heart of what i was just talking about it's it's a book that looks at how graphic design and typography influence behavior and right now if we were to say is there a style of graphic design that predominates there is no style that predominates but there is a manner and a technique and that's to fill things with a lot of type and to make statements bold statements the big idea advertising revolution of the 50s made small statements that had great resonance. Now people are filling pages with lots and lots of words. And so this is a book that's really an homage to the stop sign. And it's an homage to the pointing finger as well. It's, it's what do we do as designers that will make somebody else do something? Cause, effect.
1: Why do you think that there's this notion right now or, or there's this trend of having so much information and so much type on things.
0: I think people are afraid of abstraction now. Why? Because I think there's so much information out there, and we are at a loss to capture all of it and understand all of it, that you have to be a bit more overt. And there's a way of being overt that is artless, and there's a way of being overt that is artful. And I think the examples that Mirko and I show in this book are artful examples of that, and designers long to be artful.
1: Steve, thank you for everything that you do. Not only designers long to be artful, I think they long to be educated, and no one, no one is doing more to influence and educate designers than you. Thank you. To learn more about Stephen Heller, visit hellerbooks.com, and to see more books in the 100 Ideas series, go to laurenceking.com. Steve's most recent book, co-written with Mirko Illich, Stop, Think, Go, Do, How Typography and Graphic Design Influence Behavior, is also out now. Steve will have to have you back on the show next season to talk even more about that fascinating topic. I'd like to thank you all for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Randy Ortica, and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.